Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 1. This is what the text says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us. For we need your help. And I pray that you would, that you would open up our hearts to see the power in the gospel according to Mark. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. There is no time to waste. The world is changing. The church is suffering. God's people are wondering. No time to waste. God's people oftentimes wonder, maybe you do, wonder, is it really worth it? Is it worth it? To be faithful to Christ, is it worth it? The economy is tanking, morals are vanishing, and people, good people, stand bewildered. If God is real, if God is real and He answers prayers, if God is real, why doesn't He do something? That would be the attitude of people that would read this, the book of Mark, for the very first time. The gospel according to Mark is unlike any other book in the Bible that you'll read. When you open up the Bible, you find four books that call themselves gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them are written with a specific purpose in mind. If you go through them as we have them in our Bible now, Matthew is the longest 28 chapters, and there you find, written to a very Jewish audience, Matthew's job and what he's doing, his purpose, is to convince those that read it that Jesus is in fact, that he is in fact the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. You'll see in Matthew several times, according to the Scripture, pointing back to the Old Testament. Luke, if you go to Luke, Luke is written from a Greek perspective, in fact, it, the prologue in Luke is to his friend Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, to convince Theophilus and every other person that speaks Greek that Jesus is, in fact, the perfect Son of God. You get to the Gospel of John. John's not like any of them. You have the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar. John is different. John goes his own path. He's an apostle. And John uses language that is majestic. And his intent is to prove that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Mark stands by himself. Mark is probably the most neglected gospel. You don't hear many quotations out of the gospel of Mark. In fact, there was no commentaries written on the book of Mark until about five or 600 A.D., 600 years I mean, it was in the Bible, but it was just sort of looked over. Mark is different. Mark is written in Rome to a church in Rome. Written to a church that is agonizing under the brutal tyranny of the emperor Nero. Now, I don't care for the leadership of Joe Biden. I don't like the way he leads. I don't. I don't like the policies he gives. I don't think he believes in the things that I believe in. But he's not Nero. 
And Mark writes to a church that is under the boot of Nero, pressing them to fix their eyes on Jesus, the suffering servant that gives his life for the ransom of many. You go and read the Gospel of Mark, a full third of Mark, five or six chapters, is focused on the resurrection. Focused on the crucifixion and resurrection. Speaking of Gospel, Mark is probably, there is some dispute, but probably the first one written. If not, there's 90% of Mark is found in Matthew. He's certainly influenced. It's the shortest Gospel. He probably invented the genre of a gospel. There was no such thing as a gospel called a book. It's very common to us to call them the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark. Before then, there was no such thing as that genre of a gospel. You read the book of Mark and you find out it is, it is fast moving and hard hitting. Always action. His gospel moves over and over again. You'll see the word. We'll see it a bunch in the next year or so. The word immediately, immediately serves as a, a sort of drumbeat that keeps the song moving down the road. If you're an average reader, you were to go home today and put your phone in another room. If you're an average reader and put your phone in another room and open up the book of Mark and you sat down to read it, it would take you about two hours to read the entire book of Mark. You read Mark, there's no genealogy like Matthew. There's no birth announcement like Luke. There are no angels showing up, no shepherds showing up. There's no childhood visit of Jesus to the synagogue reading the scripture. There are very few parables. There's no sermon on the mount. There's no majestic mystical language like John in John chapter 1. There's no Christmas story. I couldn't have sat here Christmas time and read Mark to the children. It's not in there. Instead, Mark takes us very quickly, takes us quickly to the church that is under Nero, takes us quickly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This one who died in the place of sinners, this one who defeated death by his glorious resurrection, and today reigns as Lord of all. And the point of this whole little book is the suffering Savior. And the suffering Savior is worth your life. I want you to believe that. I want you to grasp that. I want you to put your faith in Jesus, not just as a nominal Christian. I want you to put your faith in Jesus to the degree that when you're pressed the point of losing a career or it's going to cost you financially, that it's worth, this suffering Savior's worth your life. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's make this an, introdu an introduction and let's just draw some lessons from the Gospel of Mark in general and that one verse. What are the lessons we can learn from the Gospel according to Mark? Here's the first one, number one. God is not done with you. I don't know what you've done, where you've been, what kind of history you got, what kind of guilt you're carrying. God, if you're a child of God, He's not done with you. Let's find out a little bit about this man named Mark, the author. Let's talk about him just for a little bit. 
The first time we meet the man named Mark, it's in Acts chapter 12. I'm going to quote a bunch of stuff from Acts. No need to turn there. I'll just kind of walk through it. You can write it down and go back and look later if you'd like. In Acts chapter 12, the setting is that Peter has been arrested. He's put in jail. He is between two guards. He's gone to sleep. He's chained to those two guards. An angel comes to wake him up to deliver Peter. Peter is so asleep that the angel has to kick him, wake him up. Peter wakes up, chains fall off, and they walk outside of the jail. Peter doesn't know if he's having a vision or what he, is he dreaming. Finally, he comes to himself outside of that jail in the town square. And when he comes to himself, he, he decides to run quickly to the house where he knows everybody will be. The house owned by a woman named Mary. Now, every woman in the New Testament is named Mary. So Luke, who's telling us this, says, look, let me tell you which Mary this is. This is Mary who has a son named John Mark. John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Greek name. That's the first time we see the name Mark. Mark is a young man then. His, his, there his mother is a widow. She is well off, big enough house to have the whole church there serving and praying. They've been praying for Peter. So we get some feel of the environment that Mark is coming up in. Mark is exposed to the gospel early, probably from the man named Peter. In fact, I'll just give you a, a telegraph. Peter is the one who gave Mark all the information. So he grows up in that house. In chapter 12, we meet him there for the very first time. At the end of chapter 12, we find out that Paul and Barnabas are going to go off on a missionary journey. It's the very first missionary journey at the end of chapter 12, end of chapter 13. And they decide to take a young man with them, this man we met, this young man named Mark. Mark goes with them not as an apostle, not as a preacher, not as an evangelist. In fact, in chapter 13 of Acts, we are told Mark is a helper. He's an intern. He's sort of on a job interview with Barnabas and Paul. They go off on their missionary journey, and as missionary journeys oftentimes do, it turns rough. And when it does, for some reason, in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, something happens. And Mark walks away. He leaves Paul and Barnabas. Now, we don't know, was he, was he homesick? Did he miss his mother? Was it too hard? Was it not what he thought it was going to be? Like going out for football and you get there and you find out you actually are going to get hit. You just don't like it. What happened to Mark? We don't know. He goes off. Later in chapter 15, Paul will say he deserted us. Speaking of chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 37 to 38, wherever Mark went off, he shows back up with Barnabas. Barnabas is his cousin. We find out in Colossians chapter 4 that Barnabas is actually his cousin. And so Barnabas decides, after hearing from Paul, Paul says, let's go, let's go make a second missionary journey. Let's go and strengthen all the churches that we planted. Let's go see them, how the brothers are doing. Barnabas says, that's a great idea. He's Mr. Encouragement. And I want to take Mark with us. That's Acts 15, verse 37 and 38. Well, Paul, you know, Paul's black and white. No way. Mark's a deserter. He's a coward. You can't trust him. That poor Mark, he's a young man. He's made a poor decision. It's costing him. There's such a dis disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. They get so heated. Luke tells us it's a sharp disagreement. So sharp, they split up. 
Barnabas and Mark, they sail off to Cyrus. And we never, Luke doesn't tell us anything else about Barnabas. Mark's gone. Paul and Silas go off on their mission trip and God uses them tremendously. It's a great trip. Years go by. The young man Mark grows up. Years are passing by. As he's 16 or 17 when he starts. Ten years go by. Maybe 13, maybe 15 years go by. Something has happened in the intervening years to Mark and, and possibly to Paul's heart because in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul is there writing to the church at Colossae and he tells them, Mark is here with me. Welcome him when he comes. Something has happened. There's been a reconciliation. Mark has grown up and Paul has forgiven him and, and all that grace Paul been preaching, he decided to extend it to Mark. Mark has developed and he's changed so much that when we get to the end of Paul's life, Paul is writing to his, his protege, Timothy. The letters are 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy is the end of his life. It's, it's 2 Timothy is the letter that has all that uh, Paul saying, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. He's dying, or at least he knows he's going to die soon. And he's giving instructions to Timothy what's going to help him. And one of, one of the parts of the instruction is, hey, would you please send Mark to me? He is so useful. What's happened to Mark? We know the story of Paul. He dies in Rome. Mark's in Rome. Peter. Peter's in Rome. Peter writes a letter from Rome, 1 Peter. And in chapter 5 um, of 1 Peter, he's talking about Rome, but he does it in code language. He says, Rome is Babylon. I'm in Babylon and the church in Babylon. And he says, Mark. Mark's not with Paul anymore. Paul's gone. He's with Peter. Mark is here with me. Mark is my son. Now think with me about this, <clears throat> this man that wrote the gospel. Think with me about the transformation in his life, the miracle in his life, that Mark, the very first time we see him, the very first circumstances and, and difficult situation we find him in, he becomes a quitter. Even Paul says he's a deserter. Something happened. God's grace in his life. We feel like he's probably already a Christian. He went with them. Something happened in his life. Maybe he just grew up. Maybe all those things he thought he believed, he finally now is living them out. To the degree that, to the degree that Paul and Peter, he spends all that time with Peter. He's watched Peter's life. You know how Peter is talking so much and Peter's real mannish and preaching and, and Mark's watching that and spends time with Peter in Rome and church tradition that reaches all the way back to the beginning tells us that Mark got all his information from Peter. And the grace of God that it takes for this young man who was a deserter to be transformed to the degree that he becomes the one that puts pen to paper and tells us God's Word and writes the sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, God is not 
done with you. There is redemption. There is grace. There is useful. There is usefulness. God is not done. <clears throat> Let me give you a second thing we can learn. Just from the book of Mark, number two. That is, God uses suffering and hard times. That's what He uses. Suffering. He can handle the stress in your life. I'm not telling you to handle the stress. He can handle the stress in your life. Let's, let, let me think about um, when. Now, we talked about who. That's Mark, John Mark. That's who wrote it. When was it, when was it written? What is the context? What's going on when this was written? Well, most believe it was written between the years 60 A.D. and 70 A.D. No later than 70 A.D. There's no mention of the temple destruction here in the book. So probably before the temple is destroyed, somewhere between those two, most people would put it close to 66 A.D. That's a terrible time to be in Rome. At that time, 66 A.D., a man named Nero is sitting on the throne. He is the emperor in Rome. He's not really any worse than any other Roman emperor. They're all bad if you're a Christian. But something happens in Rome. A fire sweeps across the city of Rome that destroys about 75 percent. It's worse than the fire in London that you read about. Destroys most of the city. And you know, when something like that happens, we always look for somebody to blame. The citizens in Rome start blaming Nero. Well, Nero's no fool. He's heard of this group they're meeting called Christians. They have these weird beliefs. They do something like cannibalism. They call each other brothers and sisters. He hears that and he blames the Christians. Soon the society turns on Christians and widespread persecution begins. Nero, with his twisted mind, he takes Christians, has them arrested, dips them in oil and pitch and chains them to the stake in his garden, lights them on fire, illuminating his garden with burning Christians. That's the context. This is probably how Peter died. Mark knows that people are dying like that. They're at least being persecuted. They're meeting in catacombs where the dead bodies are to worship, doing all they can to be away from, from Nero. And God is using that time in history and this man who's been through so much to write the book of Mark to encourage our hearts. He writes to a, a hurting church. When you read Mark, you see him calling the church to be faithful, to, to focus on Jesus. Man, has there ever been a time, has there ever been a time in the history of the United States when we didn't need Christians to be more faithful than we do right now? When so much is going in a direction that is against what we believe, we stand faithful. God uses suffering in hard times. That's a lesson from the book of Mark. Let me give you a third lesson to consider. <clears throat> Number three, God uses your influence. God uses your influence. Think about the man named Mark. Now, Mark, as a young man, didn't show very much promise. Paul called him a deserter. But Mark had been under the influence of people that knew Jesus. He came up in a home led by a woman that loved Christ. She was a woman of some means. We don't know what happened to her husband. She probably is a widow. She was hospitable. She opened up her home. 
She made sure that Mark came into contact with Christian men. If he didn't have a dad around, well, what a great substitute is the Apostle Peter. Speaking of Peter, Peter becomes the major influence. Maybe, maybe Peter's the one that led Mark to Christ. Maybe Mary did. We don't know. Certainly he was discipled by Peter, at least by watching Peter, being around Peter. Peter becomes the influence in his life that will be called a father-son relationship over in 1 Peter. Peter is, is, is pouring in. Maybe you don't even know it. Poured into Mark to such a degree that Mark will write it down for us to have a gospel. Everybody needs somebody to encourage them. Mark had Barnabas. Barnabas is his cousin. What a great... What a great thing to have Barnabas as your cousin. Barnabas is so kind to everybody that he's called the son of encouragement back in Acts. That's the man that's your cousin, is your cousin. He has defended Mark. He has propped him up. He's believed in him when everybody else didn't. When Paul called him a deserter, Barnabas is propping him up. And then there's, then there's Paul. It's a strange relationship between the two then Mark would be the cause of Paul and Barnabas splitting. That there would be a, such a terrible argument. Here's Paul, this prickly man who's so clear, black and white on doctrine. And while the, at first their relationship really was not good, there was this reconciliation that came around. And, and here Mark would learn the finer points of the substitutionary death of Jesus and what that means. And he could make it so that it's compact in his gospel. Mary and Barnabas and Peter and Paul. Mark didn't just happen. People invested. Who are you investing in with the gospel? Who are you influencing? Who are you teaching? Who are you leading? Investment, just by the very nature of the term, investment is costly. Who are you spending on? God uses your influence. We learned that. From the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to give you a fourth thing. <clears throat> Number four, God, God can redeem a bad argument. Now, now, Kyler mentioned it. Some of you may have had an argument in the rain coming to church. How depressing is that? But you're here. God can redeem a bad. You go and read the story in chapter 13 of Acts and chapter 15. Friends break up. Chapter 15, there is a sharp disagreement between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It does not look good. In fact, Barnabas rides off into the sunset. Paul and Silas go and do missions. And if, you, if, that's, the, if that's the end of the story, then Mark has blown his chance. But somewhere, and we have to read back in, somewhere there was humility, there was... Reconciliation, there was confidence put in Mark, there was pride pushed down. Somewhere Christianity started to work. Read a book right now about um, a famous professor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. His name is Gresham, Gresham Machen. It's a hard name to say, Gracian Mitchell. And uh, he was a professor at Princeton Seminary back in the 1920s, the turn of the 20th century in the 1920s. 
And as Princeton started to lean and go liberal theologically, Gresham stood his ground to the degree that he started losing friends and he, he actually left the seminary and started Westminster Seminary, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a great book, it's not very long, easy to read. You should read it sometime. And the story is a tragic one because friends broke up, people left Princeton that had been working together for all these years to start Westminster. And you read the story and you find out it was harmful and it was a terrible argument and disagreement, but, but the rightness of Gratian, that God would redeem that and use that to keep the flame of the gospel moving forward. You've been in a bad argument and it stopped arguing and you stopped arguing because you're tired of it. That's not a good enough reason to stop arguing. We, we've got to find resolution, even if it takes years. If all we had was Acts chapter 15, that is a terrible end to the relationship. That is not all we have. The story tells us that those men came back together. We've got to find resolution. Don't leave it. Don't leave it. What is the Christian thing to do? God can redeem a bad argument. Let me give you another thing to consider. Let's go to the Bible here in verse 1. Here's the fifth thing that we learn. God is the God of new beginnings. Maybe you're new to the church, new to Christianity. You should hear, yes, God hates sin. He will judge sin. It's true. We should fear God because of that. That fear drives us to the grace of God found in Jesus. That's how God is just and the justifier. And here we are told there's a new beginning. God is the God of new beginnings. What does the text say? Here's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. It's as if Mark reached back to Genesis chapter 1 and said there was one beginning in Genesis. Now there is a new beginning. There was an Old Testament, Old Covenant, now a new covenant. This is what John would do in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But not only that, when you read this, you get the sense that, that Mark is telling us that God initiates. I, I love A.W. Tozer. I appreciate his passion. I think that the right, things he writes are very, very good. His book, The Pursuit of God, everything about it is good except the title. We don't pursue God. God pursues us. The text says that he who began a good work in you. Here's a good place to say for any of you, today can be, today can be a new day of real change when you see for the first time the grace of God found in Jesus that will save you. God is a God of new, new beginnings. There's something else here in this one little verse. Sixth thing I want you to see is that God has come to us. God has come to us. Even the, even the name Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to us. See what the text says? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel. The gospel, the way we say it, gospel really is, uh, comes from the old English of God spell, which is good news. It's a right translation, good news. The word itself, before it had Christian meaning, it was to stand and proclaim this epoch-making event that's going to change everything. Good news. 
explain the gospel and you understand that God is a holy God who created all of us in His image and the image that we have has been disfigured by our sin, that sin separates us from God. We deserve judgment and that is terrible news. That terrible news makes us long for something good. The good news, the beginning of the good news. The good news is that although God is just, He is also justifier and gives us Jesus who lived in our place, died in our place, raised from the dead in our place. And any person that believes, the gospel promises anyone that believes can be saved. God has come to us. Look, that's what, and that's what Mark is about. That's the next point, is that God, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. What Mark is going to tell us over and over again, God saves sinners. You, you see, the text says, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, Jesus. You've been here long enough, if you've been coming to church for some time, you've heard us say over and over, what is the name Jesus? Jesus is Yeshua, it's Joshua from the Old Testament. It actually means Yahweh saves. When the angel came to Joseph and he told Joseph, here's what I want you to name that baby, name that baby Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Jesus is described as the one who is friend of sinners. Jesus himself would say, I didn't, come to, I didn't come to save people that think they're righteous. I come to save those that understand they're sinners. You see, God saves. That's what Mark is about. God saves sinners. Another thing you'll notice and lesson we'll learn from the book of Mark, as you read it, will be that God is sovereign. I hope that you'll learn to love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I hope that you will love the fact that God is in complete control all the time. He's actively in control. You see it in the title. You read the phrase in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, that's His humanity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word Christ is not a name, it is a title. It is the translation of the Anointed One. It comes from the Hebrew of Messiah, the one that's been promised. You know, you can tell that Mark got his information from Peter. Remember at Caesarea Philippi when, when Jesus has asked, Who do people say that I am? And he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting on. If he has the title Christ, that means he is Lord, that he has sway, that he keeps his promises, that he will walk you through what you're in. The Gospel of Mark reminds us that God is sovereign. I'll give you one last one <clears throat> in our introduction. What does Mark remind us? We are reminded that God has not forgotten us. God has not forgotten where you are, what you've been through. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. 
Jesus, the Son of God, one in nature with God, co-eternal with God, co-equal with God. And that one has come to save us. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what Mark is about. He's the hope of our lives that gives us strength for another day. In our study this year, and maybe next year, I want you to see and believe that Jesus, the suffering Savior, is worth your very life. If you join me now as we go to a time of prayer. Join me as we pray. Father, we do pray in the name of Jesus. We ask you to help us. Help us as we study this year. Help us as we seek to honor you. Help this church. Lord, find us faithful. Be honored in our lives. Keep us humble and desiring of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.